What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, what's good, man? Nothing much. I'm actually kind of frustrated this evening. Oh my gosh, why? I have a little uh, a war going on in my house, Ugh. but it's really outside of my house. It's with moles. Moles, oh yeah? Yeah. Terrible. Tearing up your yard? Tearing them up, dude. Last year, it was just the backyard, and it was a constant battle, but you know, people can't see the backyard, so mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. They moved to the front now. Yeesh. Yeah. Get those little uh, pellets you put in the ground. So I tried the pellets. Pellets don't work. So I asked like the pro, the professional people, you know, how much. They're like, oh, yeah, it's $400 for this amount of time. I'm like, that's crazy. Well, what do y'all do? They just take the the um, mole worms. They're worms. Mm-hmm. Poison worms, of course. And they treat it. They come back a month later, see if the moles are still alive. If not, they treat it. They just put worms out. So I just bought the worms. That's what I put out. Nice. So. We're going to see if I can like, murder like some moles. No, worms? they're not real worms. They're, oh, okay. They're like... Um, they look like worms. It's like a literal gummy worm, oh. but poison. Hmm. So you want to keep so those get, away from... Don't get those mixed up. Children. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, it looks like a large gummy worm. Yeah. Have you ever seen a mole? Very like, weird. They're in very life. weird looking. Well, yeah. I mean, my dogs would you know dig up the yard and kill them when Tear I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. They're very strange looking. We found one one time, and I was like, we should keep this thing as a pet. I'd see, I'd Back see when I was a kid, my mom's like, no. Oh, it was alive. Yeah, yeah. You found it in the yard? Yeah. And you look. I was like, this is the weirdest looking thing ever. We should put this in the, the house. The weird looking ones are the ones with like the star nose or whatever. Yeah. It's like they have a hand on their nose. Yeah, I don't That's like weird. that. Yeah. They need to keep that to themselves. <laughs> they do. Yeah, no, I, uh, my mom was like, no, you're not obviously keeping a mole in the house, which is weird because I had a lot of weird animals growing up, but mole was like, where she like, drew the line. She's not like, going to no. happen. Also, probably wouldn't be a very good, uh, you'd have to have a monster enclosure or something like that for him to dig around, I guess. Yeah, and I guess unless you could, I guess you'd have to be able to see him kind of like a, a ant farm, mm, you know, so you can cool. see his tunnels and stuff, that would be awesome. but otherwise you can't see him. He's, He's just, just like, looking to the side like, what the <laughs> heck? <laughs> you have to get tinted, a tinted one where yeah, you can see two through Yeah, two-way mirror. Two-way, yeah, two-way That mirror. would be mm. cool. That's, okay, well. I guess I know what our next project is going to be. <laughs> Don't tell Jen. So what are we talking about today? Well, I was going to ask you, have, have you, did you used to have ear infections a lot when you were a kid? Um, I did get, you know, quote unquote swimmer's ear, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. Yes, I got that a few times. Um, so yes, unfortunately, I, it wasn't something I had to deal with a lot. Like I didn't have to, you know, ever have like tubes or anything put right. in, but it was definitely something that, uh, I guess I just wasn't good at getting ear water out of my ears when I was younger. I don't recall ever really having them. I guess it might have been pre-memory. But yeah, I mean, I had friends who anytime they went swimming, like they're going to have an infection or they're going to have some issue, right? Swimmer's ear or whatever. I remember uh, one time being like, my mom made me do these like uh, swimming like classes when I was like, I I was really young, but she was like for to teach you the different like strokes and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Just which everything, you know, everything, every five, five year wants to learn. And, um, I was like, uh, I had a swimmer's ear infection or whatever. So they made me put that wax in my ear. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, this is not a good look. <laughs> like <laughs> at that, young. Know? And I remember like just looking around being like, yeah, nobody else has wax in their You're the geeky ear. kid I'm with the, the stuff. <laughs> dork with the stuff in my ear. There's no way to look cool with this. I remember the swimming lessons, but mine were more like my dad literally forcing me under the water. Mm-hmm. And then me screaming and grabbing at him to try not to go into the water, you know, so you can learn to breathe underwater because yeah, you're yeah. terrified. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, basically being traumatized because I was <laughs> almost drowned from being forced out of the water. Yeah, no, that's good. But then I learned to swim, so. So it all worked out. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Thank you, Dad. But yeah, that's what we're talking about today. Um, two different types of ear infection. So otitis externa and um, the more uh, well-known 
Otitis Media, I would think. For sure. Yeah. So, so where do you want to start with this? I guess just some quick like background information. Um, you know, basically, like, we'll start from the outside and work our way in. So otitis externa, um, basically just this diff- diffuse inflammation um, of the external ear canal. Um, and that may or may not involve the tympanic membrane, depending on how bad it is. So a lot of times patients will kind of show up. They'll have, you know, inflammation, obviously, in the ear canal, but also usually like itching, um, maybe like a feeling of like fullness. Um, Sometimes if it's bad enough, it can even have like jaw pain associated with it. Um, Temporary like hearing loss can also be an issue. Um, Odorrhea, uh, so basically, you know, drainage out of the ear. Um, And then even uh, like redness and swelling on the tympanic membrane itself. Um, but usually symptoms, especially the, from a pain standpoint, kind of kick in within 48 hours of the infection. Um, and then a lot of times, too, the patients will have some kind of um, history of like recent water exposure. Um, other times patients will have maybe a history of like local trauma. Uh, and then they also could have like almost like an allergic component to like patients with eczema and things like that can also kind of make them more susceptible to it. Um, but a lot of times otitis externa, you'll hear kind of like commonly referred to as swimmer's ear. So I always think of it as, you know, patients who are spending a lot of time in the water. So a lot of times you see this in kids, um, spending time in the water and whatnot, and they're not getting that water out of there. Um, it's allowed to kind of the bacteria gets stuck down in there and allowed to kind of grow and turn into an infection. Yes. So it is an infection and there's common um, bacteria associated with it. So you'll recognize these, one, Pseudomonas, um, and also Staph aureus. So those are two common bacteria that cause the otitis externa. Um, It can be caused by other bacteria or um, a combination of multiple bacteria at the same time, and it can be fungal. But Pseudomonas and Staph aureus are common ones. Um, like my kid mentioned before, you can have issues with hearing. So hearing loss and that comes from, or can come from narrowing of the external auditory canal. Um, if it's, it can become more severe, um, it can affect the soft tissues and even bone. Um, and you might call that malignant otitis externa. Um, it can be classified as chronic. So chronic externa would be defined as it being there for longer than three months, um, this could be a psoriasis type situation, an allergic issue, like Mike mentioned before, eczema, or if it's just not adequately treated, um, acute otitis externa that lasts longer than three months. One thing interesting about that, uh, the malignant OE, like you mentioned, um, where it's kind of extending into that soft tissues and even the bone, um, 90% or so, depending on the statistic you're looking up, um, 90% or so of patients that actually experience that have uncontrolled diabetes. Hmm. So that's Makes one sense. of the things that's, especially obviously in older patients, um, when the patient is uncontrolled, it may, uh, uncontrolled diabetes, it may kind of change up how we um, treat the patient just because that seems to be a, a complication specifically, you know, in that patient population. Um, so the the good thing about treating otitis externa um, is we don't have to put the person on systemic antibiotics in most cases. Um, so typically we're going to use a topical eardrop um, antibiotic and usually a combination. Um, and then t- typically what we do is we use either an antibiotic or two antibiotics together with a combined uh, corticosteroid as well. 
So a very common, just to kind of lay out a few, none of these have been shown to be necessarily better than the others as far as efficacy, but um, just to give you some common treatments that you'd probably run into, um, you could do things like the cortisporin, which is the neomycin, polymyxin B, and hydrocortisone combined. Um, and there's actually two different forms of that too, just to kind of mention. There's the suspension and the solution. Um, and I believe it, it, the suspension is actually known to be less irritating um, than the solution. So they come, I remember, there, I can't remember which manufacturer it was, but there was one that was a green box and a blue box. And they were all identical except the fact that one was the suspension, one was the solution. I remember as an intern. The Paragrow? May, and then maybe. That sounds mm, familiar. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But I remember being like a tech. I think it was a tech. I don't think I was even an intern at this point. But I remember being like, I know the difference between those two are. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Um, so I was like a point of pride for me in my pharmacy. <laughs> but um, so that's one option. Um, there's uh, also some combinations with ciprofloxacin. So there's the Cipro HC. So ciprofloxacin, and it's a 0.2%, and then hydrocortisone. Um, that one... Tend, I haven't checked the price in a while, but I believe that one tends to be a little bit more pricey. Um, there's also another ciprofloxacin that's a little bit more concentrated, so it's 0.3%, um, and it's in combination with dexamethasone, 0.1%. That one's called Ciprodex. And it's still expensive, but it went generic last year, so it? price should be coming down. Mm -hmm. That's good. And there's actually there's another one that I um, want to mention just because it's I think it's something you probably will see, and there's it's called cortisporin uh, T, let's see, cortisporin, I want to make sure I say the name right, cortisporin TC, I believe. Um, I'm looking this up in real time so you guys can feel like you're a part of it. Cortisporin TC, yeah. So it's the um, thonsium. Um, is an, it's like the original, the uh, neomycin. This one has uh, colistin in it instead of polymyxin B, and then hydrocortisone and thonsium. So it's a little bit slightly different. I haven't seen any, you know, additional benefit. In fact, the thonsium ingredient itself, I've looked up and it doesn't seem to be correlated with any additional efficacy and, and cure rates or anything like that. Um, and I do know the price is significantly higher for that one compared to regular cortisporin. So if you happen to see cortisporin TC, um, especially if it's an uninsured patient, obviously be aware that it may not be all that more effective. And for a standard patient, you're going to get a good response from many of these. Anyway, yeah, so. exactly. Um, so some th those are the combo products that are pretty common. There, there's others, uh, I know they're out there, but those three are pretty common. Then we also have uh, some alternatives, like we have ofloxacin by itself. Um, and then we also have some aminoglycosides like tobramycin and gentamicin um, that are available as well, kind of as singular products. Um, there's also uh, Volsol HC, which is acetic acid and hydrocortisone, um, but we'll talk about that one again when we come to uh, fungal infections. Um, the big question, obviously, being to, is the steroid that's a component of the combos um, needed or of you know, a benefit? Is it harmful? You know, all the those type of things. Um, and there's been studies that have looked at antibiotics versus antibiotics plus steroids. Um, and that does seem to correlate with the same cure rates, regardless of the steroid being present or not. However, the symptom relief, so that relief from pain and whatnot, mm -hmm. is going to be achieved about a day earlier if you use the combination. So something to keep in mind, obviously, if it's an adult who doesn't care and price is a major driving factor, um, Ofloxacin by itself um, without the 
um, steroid is going to be just fine. It's going to treat the infection and it's definitely much cheaper than something like Ciprodex. But, um, yeah, so just something to kind of keep in mind. It's not the end all, uh, be all to have uh, a steroid in there, but it does make the symptoms go away quicker. Right. Uh, there are some special considerations with these. Uh, so, um, the state of the tympanic membrane can be important. So if you have a tympanic membrane perforation, a lot of times primary care providers will use ofloxacin, uh, but you may see otolaryngologists use cortisporin or CiproHC. Um, if it's still intact, so there's no perforation, um, aminoglycosides can be used. Uh, a, a good um, trivia question for pharmacists that they like to throw around is that um, there is a difference between eye drops and ear drops, um, but eye drops can go in the ear, but ear drops cannot go in the eye, um, and that's because the eye is, is sterile. So if your eye drops are already sterile, they can go in the ear, but the ear drops are not made the same way. So um, it would not be safe to put those in the eye. Um, and interestingly, some eye preparations are better tolerated than ear preparations as well. Um, severe cases may require using a wick. Yeah. And kind of going back to what you said about the um, primary care versus, you know, specialist. Um, I saw a study that just recently, it was from a few years ago, but I, it was new to me, um, where they were kind of looking at that. And it looked like even with tympanic membrane perforation, there was not really any additional danger between using um, a steroid or not. And so some of that fear from the primary care saying you like only wanted to use the mm -hmm. steroid and not the, or the, excuse me, the antibiotic, not the steroid seems to be something that's kind of like been grandfathered in, but not right. necessarily needs to be in a modern day, you know, medicine. So but, do you want to avoid aminoglycosides if the tympanic membrane's perforated? So yeah, that's the case because yeah. of the ototoxicity, even topically, we do try to avoid aminoglycosides. But if it's if it's a steroid um, and you have some tympanic membrane perforation, you don't have to necessarily avoid the steroid. Gotcha. So yeah, but the aminoglycosides for sure. Yep. And that wick is pretty pretty cool looking. If you guys haven't seen it, you should definitely Google a picture because it looks like a little piece of cotton. Mm -hmm. um, and it it what it, I mean, it's basically all it is. It expands whenever it gets wet. So you, it puts the, uh, the the drops directly on it. It expands, opens up that ear canal, and allows the the drops to get a little lower in the ear. Um, but yeah, the, obviously we can't show you a picture of it right now. But take Google and uh, Google the image and check take a look. It's pretty cool if you haven't seen one. All right. Um, so what about systemic antibiotics for initial therapy um, in, in otitis externa? Now, um, in most cases, like I said, we, we can use topical antibiotics and then be just fine. Um, there are some cases where we may need to initiate systemic antibiotics, one of which being recurrent infections. Um, maybe the patient's just incapable of kind of getting the drops deep enough in the ear. Um, maybe the... It, it's the wrong antibiotic. Whatever the case may be, they keep coming back. Let's maybe consider systemic antibiotics at that point. Um, also, severe symptoms. Um, you know, in some cases, if the patient's having you know just really really bad um, reaction, like you know pain, really bad inflammation, maybe it's they're affecting their hearing. We need to do something a little bit more drastic. Maybe then systemic antibiotics would be a good option. Um, if there's any kind of extension beyond the external ear canal, obviously we're thinking initial. Um, therapy with systemic antibiotics in that point because that's more of the otitis media at that point. Um, or patients with poorly uncontrolled diabetes. Uh, so if you have a patient uh, that's you know, has a really high A1C. Um, it's not been controlled for a little bit. There are going to be the highest ones that are at risk for that malignant OE, like we talked about earlier. So those would be ones that you really want to make sure you, you nip this infection um, before it 
gets gets worse. Mm-hmm. And then same with immunocompromised patients. It may be something to consider systemic antibiotics in them. doesn't mean that every one of those things we always are going to use to um, systemic over topical, but those are some scenarios where you might want to at least consider systemic antibiotics. Yep. So next we're going to tell you how to properly administer an eardrop, which is a good counseling point for pharmacists and for people prescribing it. I can just assure you there's no way that patients do this correctly every time. There's just no way. So apparently it can work without doing this perfectly, but um, it's good to let them know how to do it. Uh, So one good thing is to tell them to warm the bottle before they administer. So warm it by rolling it in your hands um, because if it's too cold, it can be painful and even cause some dizziness. So, you know, just an additional side effect concerning in elderly people for sure. Um, have the patient lie down or tilt their head at least um, so the the affected, uh, the affected ear faces upward. Um, use the drops to fill the ear canal and then keep the ear facing up for around five minutes. That's the part that I'm sure people don't do all the time. Yeah. Five minutes. Um, and do not touch the dropper to any surface or it can contaminate it. Especially since there's not going to be the same preservatives like in the eye drops. Right. So it's very easy to contaminate comparatively. So right. Not great. Just keep on giving them more and more bacteria back in the year. It's not ideal. Switching out the bacteria for a different bacteria. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, in the case of a uncomplicated fungal otitis externa, um, so this may be something that uh, comes up where, you know, it's maybe you've treated uh, with antibiotics is not going away and there's a lot more like itching and things like that associated with it. It may be something to consider that it's a fungal origin. Um, so, Treatment-wise, we could use the uh, acetic acid and hydrocortisone combo that we mentioned earlier. And acetic uh, acid does actually come as a product by itself. Um, and there's also a clotrimazole solution um, that's uh, Lotrimin that comes as a, a drop that you can use uh, in the ear. And so either of those options would be good. I, I, the acetic acid hydrocortisone, um, because as the steroid, um, would be something to consider. Um, now the thing is if it becomes recurrent or if it's severe enough at onset like when the first patient's first arriving you know maybe start them on that but probably refer to a specialist just to make sure that everything is is good and that it's cleared up um prevention for either one of these uh whether it's bacterial or fungal um, would be things like we talked about earlier as a joke using earplugs for swimming um not good for trying to look cool but good for preventing your infections um making sure that you kind of tilt your head to let the water drain out if you do go you know swimming and have your head submerged and all that um and just kind of gently bouncing your head to the side to kind of let that water drain out. Um, and there's also some preparations that you can use, like there's an, like the acetic acid without the steroid um, that's available for you to kind of put in the ears to kind of help um, cause that water to evaporate. There's also one that's called swimmer's ear, I believe, yep. that uh, I think is just... Or swim ear, I think. Swim ear. I think. Um, it's just like a white bottle with a guy swimming laps on it, And uh, <laughs> if I remember. And uh, the I think it's just... it's I'm pretty sure it's just plain ethanol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just alcohol. Uh, ethyl alcohol. Yeah. So it's just there to help dry up that loose water that's in the ear. So yeah. nothing special, but also... People kill for it, though. They're always uh, yeah. wanting that stuff. And make sure that if a patient does have it... Like, let's say you're working in community pharmacy and they come in with an ear infection... Um, have them 
you know, go see someone as opposed to giving that swimmer's ear over the counter. Cause I have had a few people back when I was in that role, um, patients that thought they could use that and it would be magically cure the, mm-hmm. it's not in a body. Yeah. Definitely uh, make sure they're reading the ingredients as opposed to the label because yeah. it's a little misleading. I have, I feel like it would be more preventative than if you feel like you're having an, like, you know what I mean? If you have ear, if you have water in there and you can't bang it out, yeah. use some dried up. Yeah. And then if, but if you have an infection, it's probably going to be treated unless it's media and we'll talk about that, Brian. <laughs> I had a, uh, I had one of my PA students, um, we talked about this recently with the PA students in, uh, in class and one of them kind of like raised his hand and, and, uh, I didn't ask him if I can share the story, but I'm sure he won't care. <laughs> um, and he was saying that when he was younger, I think he said he was maybe like seven or eight, he had gone tubing with some family members and stuff and had some water in his ear and didn't know, I guess he had taken a rough like spill. And so his water had gone up in his ear so hard that it actually perforated his, his uh, tympanic membrane. And, and I don't even know, like the, I guess just because the, such a soft, like sensitive area, but they, uh, they dropped the alcohol in his ear to try to get the water out because mm-hmm. they thought that's all it was. And he, he said it was basically like a, concu- <laughs> a concussion grenade, like what? <laughs> went off inside of his head. <laughs> He's screaming and his parents didn't know what was wrong. I was like, Geez, did you ever go tubing again? He goes, it took a while. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny. That's I was like, geez, that is rough. That's, That's terrible. Like PTSD after just putting some drops in your ear. Surprised that doesn't happen more often. Yeah, that'd be rough. That's. I guess he must have. Uh, they probably just figure it's hit, a bad infection or something. If he's, you know, they don't. Yeah, might not realize that that's what's going on. Yeah. He, he hit the water hard enough to where his eardrum popped, and then <laughs> <laughs> they put alcohol in there. <laughs> that's. Uh, I, I imagine when I would go um, tubing on the lake. You know, my dad's driving the boat. 100 miles an hour flip you as hard as you possibly can so you half die and that's what i imagine happening yeah in, for I, sure i've probably had some busted eardrums <laughs> definitely had some flayed skin after <laughs> skidding across the water for 50 feet yeah it's freaking tubing okay it's fun time so that's um otitis externa so now we're going to move a little deeper into the middle ear with otitis media right mm-hmm. so it's an infection of the middle ear um Pathogens can be a little bit different, um, but still recognizable. Strep pneumo, um, H flu, MCAT, group A strep, all those can cause infect, uh, otitis media. Um, symptoms are usually acute, um, which is similar to externa, otalgia, oral fullness, um, and uh, possibly decreased hearing um, depending on how high the fever is. So, um, or I guess with or without fever, I should say. Yeah, can be to both. Um, so they can use the, uh, the otoscope to just basically assess, um, the arrhythmia, um, and, you know, just the basic inflammation of the, the tympanic membrane as well as like a look for like a bulging of that tympanic membrane, um, looking for any kind of pus that's built up behind the tympanic membrane. Um, you know, there's the main kind of consideration for treating with antibiotics is the presence of pain, which obviously is going to be there regardless in most cases. But um, on top of the pain, seeing, you know, the objective findings, including that um, tympanic membrane inflammation, redness, and then, the, you know, the bulging, especially if there's a fever present, um, that kind of pushes you a little bit more towards the need for antibiotics. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting is the uh, the UK NICE guidelines. Um, so the, the guidelines that they use for various disease states over in the UK um, recommend observation for otitis media as opposed to treating with antibiotics every single person that comes in with that diagnosis unless their patient is severely ill or there's evidence of like some kind of a complication or something like that. 
um, the presence of middle ear fluid. So just the buildup of fluid in the ear, not pus, but actual fluid alone um, does not necessarily indicate the need for antibiotic use. So one of the things I was telling my students also is that might be a little bit harder selling point in the urgent care clinic to... Yeah. Well, it's always a hard selling point to not give someone an antibiotic. Yeah, because they come in, they're going to want antibiotics. Now, the thought process, obviously, the reason why they may hold off on antibiotics is because they want to make sure the body doesn't, one, clear it on its own, you know, making sure that it actually needs, um, you know, the antibiotics to be treated, and you're, you're promoting antimicrobial stewardship. You know, the, the bugs that we're covering for are also the ones that are involved in most respiratory type infections, including pneumonia. So we want to limit, you know, kind of exposure to antibiotics. However, when most Americans go into uh, urgent care settings, we tend to be like, hey, we need antibiotics. We already know which ones to give. Just give me a Z-Pack or whatever I need and get out of my way. So we have yeah, a lot of a, resistance problems. It's a tough line to tow. And so sometimes they'll say something like, because say it doesn't resolve in a certain amount of time, then they probably are going to need an antibiotic. Um, so especially if it's an urgent care, do they just call back in and you'll call in the prescription or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes they'll send a prescription and say, don't fill it unless, you know, it's been this long with, without resolution. But I've seen that that's frowned upon as well. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a tough, tough line to, to toe. Did you mention the Weber test? No, I didn't. That's another. I want to say, so, um, the Weber test, which is like one of the, the things you can use to diagnose is, is for hearing, but you can, you know, put a tuning fork in the middle of the forehead and kind of tell it, see if they're able to hear it or whatever. My brother was telling me when they were learning the physical exam stuff, he's in um, PA school. I actually tried to get him to come on the podcast because he's going to be in town tomorrow, but he's shy, so he didn't <laughs> want to come on. Um, but he was saying that, um, you know, anytime you had a test like that done, they would say, you know, can you hear this or let me know when you can hear this or something like that, signal when you can hear this. But you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say something along the lines of um, let me know what you sense because the, otherwise you're leading them to tell you that they can hear something or something like that. So no matter what you're, you're testing, it's like let me know what you sense and then they, they tell you what they sense. <laughs> I think if somebody told me, like tell me what you can sense, I'm like what am I, an X-Man? Right, I'd be like, like well, I can smell uh, body odor. Yeah. I can uh, feel this. I would just be sassy. Yeah, that'd be weird. I'd, I'd be too focused on that weird question to like, <laughs> yeah. even pay attention to the test at that point. Like what's this guy talking about? I'd be like, what do you sense? <laughs> Dead people? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I hope not. <laughs> so um, I mentioned the, some complicate. you know, if, if there's complications, then definitely we need to treat with antibiotics. Um, a couple like kind of more obvious complications being like conductive uh, hearing loss um, or any kind of like perforation of the tympanic membrane would be would lead you to maybe treating quicker than instead of observational. But um, also things like uh, facial palsy um, and then, you know, vertigo, things like that. And then also, especially if it's much more severe where it's spread, things like meningitis or um, mastoiditis, those are all potential complications of otitis media. So it's not just, obviously, there's going to be a lot more going on than, than it, with those last two than just uh, some ear pain. But um, those are potential complications. So it would be things that if it's, if you do feel that it's spreading, things like that, then antibiotics hundred percent would be okay to start. Right. And if you're starting them, then there are some, it depends on kind of the patient, which one you might start first. So, um, beta lactams are first line amoxicillin. You can do 500 milligrams three times a day. And that's for kids that haven't received amoxicillin in the last 30 days. 
Uh, if you're treating an adult, um, you're going to want to hit them with Augmentin, so add the uh, clavulanic acid on to the amoxicillin. You can still do 500 milligrams three times a day up to 875 twice a day, which I think I see a little more commonly, um, and that would be first line for adult patients. You can also use cefuroxime, cefpodoxime, ceftriaxone, the rocephin IM injection. Um, that shot would be given every other day for three days, and usually the course of these is seven to ten days. Dog mitten twice a day, 875 twice a day for 10 days is like super common. Pretty standard. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, to keep in mind is if you have an older patient, um, if their creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils per minute, then we would we do want to avoid those higher doses of amoxicillin. So they'd have to use the 500 milligrams instead of the 875. So just something to kind of keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go with uh, cefiroxime, then you have to consider things like antacids um, or if the patient's on H2 blockers or PPIs, um, cefiroxime and also ceftonir is another one um, that needs to have a little bit of an acidic environment to be absorbed properly. And so if a patient's on H2 blockers or a PPI, then we probably don't want to use one of those two options, especially cefiroxime being the initial one we mentioned. But um, if, it, if they're on antacids, just as needed, make sure they at least separate it by two hours either way. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, th- as far as cross sensitivity, cause that's something that always comes up with penicillins, mm-hmm. you know, penicillin allergy is a very common thing to run into. So I would encourage you if you have access to something like up to date, uh, there's a really good article on up to date talking about cross reactivity between patients with uh, penicillin allergy and then that allergy carrying over into cephalosporins. Um, and it's something that, Basically, the I mean, we usually say like less than 10% is kind of like the go-to, like the statistic that we give when we say like what's the chance of them being allergic to both settings um, or both groups rather. Um, an even more accurate way of looking at that would be uh, in looking at the actual side chains that are coming off of that beta-lactam ring. So, for example, um, amoxicillin. If you have someone that has an allergy to amoxicillin, the only um, identical or cephalosporins that have the identical side chain or R group or whatever you want to call it, um, to amoxicillin uh, is cefprozole. And that's really the only one on this, this list of three that I've even ever seen in my life. Um, and then there's uh, cefadroxyl and ceftrinzine, which I, those uh, those last two I've never even seen. I think, they, I think they're throwing cefadroxyl out for pneumonia a little bit now. I could be totally wrong about that but okay i thought that name sounds familiar that from something i've seen recently okay so there you go um but those are the only ones that have the identical side chain so those technically speaking would be the ones you have to worry about having that cross reactivity um and then with ampicillin which most of us are not going to be giving ampicillin uh po anyway um but there's the um cefaclor cephalexin um, and then there's a couple others that are very obscure that I've never heard of before. Um, but those are the two, cefaclor and cephalexin are the two that um, are commonly used still, and um, especially cephalexin. And um, they have identical side chains to ampicillin. Mm-hmm. So that's really like where the allergy, like cross-reactivity kind of comes into play. So if it's cefiroxime and the person has an allergy to amoxicillin, especially if it's something like a rash, mm-hmm. the odds of them being allergic to the cephalosporin are like extremely small. I yeah. would even say probably less than 1%. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you run into the most is somebody had an amoxicillin allergy when they were a kid and now they're getting Keflex because those are the two most common. And there really is almost like just minimal, minimal risk yeah. to that. So new providers, new pharmacists, you see that huge like warning thing that goes up and eh. 
yeah. might, might be a little overkill as far as the warning. Yeah. I'd always just ask and, you know, sometimes I'd get the whole oh, throat closed up something really crazy. Yeah. And even still, it's it should they shouldn't have a reaction to that. But at that point, just might play it a little safer. Yeah. I'm definitely a little bit more safer when it comes to uh, the throat closing up type of yeah. thing. Most of the time, it's like a little little rash. Yeah. Smitching. Or they just can't remember and they were just told they always had yeah. an amoxicillin allergy. So then you respond, get over it. <laughs> right, Cole? <laughs> just have some Benadryl close. Yeah. That's what I tell. Stop fooling around. Um, some alternative treatment options um, if a patient, you know, fails initial therapy um, would be our uh, ceftonia, which is our more broad spectrum, um, third generation cephalosporin, and then our two uh, respiratory fluoroquinolones, levofloxacin and moxifloxacin. Um, and then uh, if the patient does have uncontrolled diabetes or is immunocompromised, um, then augmentin seems to be the, the drug of choice. And we usually extend the treatment a little bit. So instead of 10 days, maybe consider going up to 14 days in that particular patient um, group. And, uh, you know, yeah. And then not that the other options aren't used, but just kind of consider that as first line. And yep. that's coming directly from um, like the Johns Hopkins antimicrobial um, guide that they have published that's kind of like their big recommendation at the end of that section yep um so if you choose to use levoquin or um, the moxifloxacin uh, we we know that fluoroquinolones have gotten a bad rap the last couple of years and for for good reason so they have a box warning for tendon inflammation and rupture um per having peripheral neuropathy that can last for months or years after using it uh, seizures uh, psychosis if it was toxic so they have black box warnings and then regular adverse effects as well qt prolongation gi upset um, hypo or hyperglycemia they can affect sulfonylureas and insulins um, musculoskeletal toxicity skin reactions stuff like that so not preferred in general and so um, definitely reserved for for later in the um in the preferred list for this for this issue as well um, they interact with medications, so uh, multivalent cations can chelate and inhibit their absorption. So you want to separate um, the doses either two hours before or six hours after the fluoroquinolones. Um, but yeah, I mentioned sulfonylureas and insulin. Also warfarin, they can increase the effects of warfarin. So if you have a patient on that, um, uh, advise them to talk to the person who monitors their uh, warfarin levels if they're going to start that antibiotic. Um, and then also... Uh, use caution uh, with drugs that can decrease potassium and magnesium. Yeah. I think it's more for the QT prolongation part yeah. of it, torsades risk. One one question I thought was a pretty good one that one of my PA students asked recently was in regards to the black box warning with the tendon rupture with um, fluoroquinolones. They said, is that something that we'd only have to worry about really, like realistically in older patients who maybe have, you know, already have like, you know, a lot of wear and tear on their, their tendons. So I've actually personally seen, I don't know if I've ever talked about this in the podcast, but I've actually seen personally two people that have had tendon rupture with fluoroquinolones, both of which were definitely not older patients. Um, one of them was a guy who looked like a bodybuilder. And the only reason I even brought it up to him is because he was ginormous and uh, looked like he couldn't wait to get back to the gym to lift weights. So I told him, hey, while you're on this fluoroquinolone, just make sure that you kind of take it easy. And um, he asked me why. And I, you know, I told him about basically can put stress on your tendons, cause inflammation, and they can even rupture. And he was like totally confused. And he like pulls up his sleeve and he shows me this huge scar on his bicep where the year prior he had had the same infection. They gave him Cipro, I think it was, or Levo. And, uh, you know, the, he was lifting, I think he was doing like, um, 
some kind of like uh back exercise where he was pulling the weight and um his his bicep tendon like blew and, and went up and they had to facially fish it out of yeah. his shoulder oh. and reattach it and so he was out for quite a while and you could see the scar up his bicep it was crazy and then i know another guy who was a runner and ran all the time totally you know you know in good shape um not old at all and uh his achilles mm. <laughs> ruptured while he was on a fl- uh, fluoroquinolone so his tendons may have obviously had some some stress from running but it just so happened to be like when he was on that so yeah. it'd be something that uh you know, it sounds like a textbook thing to say, but it definitely can't happen. I'm always concerned um, um, when I hear of a side effect that you don't hear of with other things. Like mm-hmm. tendon rupture is kind of a yeah, kind unique. of a weird, unique thing. I'm yeah. like, hmm, yeah, going to be cautious with that. For sure. That would not feel good. No. But yeah. Um, and then obviously when it comes to otitis media, there's adjunct therapy you can also consider. Um, a lot of times patients will have, you know, maybe some sinus conditions going along with this. Uh, in fact, one of the things you may see is patients having like um, a sinus infection along with otitis media because they're caused by a lot of the same bugs. Um, so if a patient's having like nasal decongestion or nasal congestion rather, um, using like a pseudofedrin um, orally or even like an Afrin spray to kind of open their sinuses up, for, you know, for a few days or so, make sure they don't use it longer than that because it'll cause really bad rebound congestion. Um, but, you know, using those to just to kind of give them some relief, help them get to sleep. Um, and then uh, analgesic as well if they're pain, in pain. So uh, acetaminophen um, or ibuprofen, naproxen, something like that would be fine. Usually over-the-counter strength is enough. Um, and then the other thing to consider is if a patient finishes their antibiotic course and they're still having you know effusion, so that fluid kind of built up in the ear, um, that does not necessarily mean that the antibiotics failed. And in fact, if there's effusions following antibiotic therapy, but there's no pain inflammation still associated with the ear, then it does not warrant additional antibiotics. Now, if the effusions persist for longer than than eight weeks, um, then maybe you need to start looking at considering like some imaging studies, things like that to kind of figure out maybe what's going on or if there's at least you can rule out you know, other things, intracranial neoplasms, things like that, that are more severe, um, just to make sure. But a lot of times you basically just that those, uh, that drainage system that's getting that effusion out of the ear is just kind of clogged because of all the, the inflammation from sinuses and other things. And so that, that effusion may just be kind of sitting in the ear and not actually indicate that there's a, a problem or that needs to be further treated. Mm-hmm. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, you're looking for the combo of that along with the pain and inflammation that's really the showing you that the antibiotics didn't work yep all right man anything else with this stuff i think we covered it all every single thing you could possibly cover (laughs) we even talked about how to you know kill moles yeah that was honestly for free you guys that was for free i think we might have helped a lot of you out (laughs) because it's frustrating yeah the things you learn on this podcast so insightful All right, y'all. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, If you have any questions, make sure you send us an email um, or you can uh, reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, You can also text us directly. And in fact, those of you who have sent me texts over this weekend, um, I apologize if not gotten back to you. I have three more that I have to respond to. So I will answer your questions soon. Um, So I don't think I forgot about you. But uh, the number is 415-943-6116. You text us directly and we'll get back to you as 
soon as we can. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you do like the podcast and enjoy it, make sure that you subscribe on whatever platform you like. Um, leave us a comment. That helps a lot. Um, check out the YouTube channel as well. We have the video versions for um, not all the episodes, but some of them up there. And we're hopefully going to be doing some cool stuff of video here pretty soon. Um, but, uh, if you have suggestions or anything like that, or you have somebody that you think would be a good candidate to come on the podcast with us, um, definitely, you know, reach out to us. We always want to look for new opportunities with guests and whatnot. So thank you guys so much. Y'all have a great night. Take it easy.